Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 34. In this week's episode, I discussed two things. In the first half, I spoke a lot about the Anand Syed case and all the developments there, so I'm sure we have a lot of questions and comments about that. And then the second half, we wrapped up Billy Belk's testimony, and we learned a little bit about uh, Colleen Barnett's trial strategy and how she chose to cross-examine him, which I found to be really, really interesting. I also want to let you guys know that this is, and I also want to give a big shout out to Mike, who has made all of these episodes sound really good. But as of right now, this is my last week on the road. So starting next week, everything will be back to normal. I'll be in the office and in the studio. Mike, you and I will be together again, finally. It's been way too long, Bob. You miss me. A little bit. <laughs> so that'll be next week. This week will be the last time that we are... Separated. I am on the road right now at an undisclosed location, and I'm not going to tell you where I'm at at the end of the episode like I did a couple weeks ago. Uh, and let's go ahead and get started, Mike, because I know we got a lot to talk about. Okay, let's get into it. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're going to start things off with questions from the Anand Syed case. Pamela writes to us, I sometimes wonder how everyone is sure that Hay was killed in the afternoon of January 13th. Her body wasn't found until 28 days later, right? So is it actually possible to nail down the exact day and time of death that long after, especially considering the condition she was left in? Also, she says, is it possible she was held somewhere and killed and buried after the ice storm? Well, first of all, it's not possible to determine an exact time of death when you know a body's been out in the elements for 28 days or, or even a few days or a week. So we, we can't determine definitively that she was, in fact, killed on the 13th of January. But what we can do is look to see, is there any evidence that would suggest that that's not the case? 
So what we know is Hay was last seen alive at school when she left. Uh, and there's a few people that seem to have the last sighting of Hay. Debbie was the biggest one, seems to be the most credible and relevant, where Debbie says she saw Hay and Adnan. They were going in different directions. Hay said she was leaving to go see Don, and she leaves. So we know that she left school, regardless of which witness testimony that we believe. Everyone says she was at school and she left after school. Now, there's a lot more to that. You know, there are people that said at lunch she sounded distracted and upset. People said that she had somewhere to be, something to do. Adnan himself said that he thinks maybe he had asked her for a ride that day, but then she said later that she couldn't give him one because something had come up. But we do know she was at school and she left school to go do something. And we also know that she had the responsibility of picking up her cousin at the daycare at, I think it was 3.15, she was supposed to pick up her cousin. Now, she never showed up to pick her cousin up and never contacted anybody to let them know why. So it's at least, I think, safe to assume that whatever happened to Hay, as far as her at least being abducted, occurred between when she left school, which could be anywhere from 2.20 until 3 o'clock. You know, there's different reportings as far as what time she left the school. Uh, but then there's a lot of these reportings that say that she she said that she had somewhere to be, something important she had to do, which presumably she was going to do prior to going to pick up her cousin. But we know that something happened before 3.15 because she, from what everyone says, that's not a responsibility that, hey, would have taken lightly or just blown off. Now, that doesn't mean she was killed at that time, but what we don't have is any evidence to suggest that she was held captive anywhere. So her injuries consisted of a blow to the head and manual strangulation, and that's it. We don't see things like ligature marks or broken fingernails or anything that might suggest she was being held captive somewhere. So what I'm getting at is if she was held captive and then killed days later, there should be evidence on her body to confirm that. Uh, because how was she held captive? Was she just put into a room? And then and locked in there, then I think we would still see sign, you know, broken fingernails, you know, bruising on her hands, things that would indicate she was trying to escape, or she was tied up somewhere. And then we would see obvious signs of ligature. Since we don't see any of those things, we can't say definitively, but I think that the most logical explanation for everything is that Hay was killed shortly after school on the 13th. It seems like this was a quick attack, it was a hit on the head, and then strangulation, and then that was it. There's no indication that anything else happened to Hay over the course of a couple of days. And then we also have to ask ourselves, what would the motivation be for someone to hold her captive? You would think there would be something along the lines of sexual assault or asking for ransom. There, there, there would have to be a motivation, I think, for someone to keep her alive for a number of days after she's, she's captured, so to speak, or abducted. And we don't see any of that. There were no signs of sexual assault on Hay. The family was never asked to pay a ransom, nothing like that. So we'd have to ask ourselves, why would someone hold her captive for a couple of days and then decide two or three days or however long later that, okay, now it's time to kill her and dispose of her body? So my personal opinion is the evidence seems to suggest that Hay was killed on the afternoon of January 13th. I think very likely probably within the first 30 minutes after she left school. If she left school at 2.15, 2.20 to meet up with someone or do something that she had to do very quickly before going to pick up her cousin, 
she never made it to pick up her cousin. So I think that likely whatever happened to her happened to her pretty close after the time she left school. All right, this next one's from Richard. How can you be so sure that the full DNA profile they got from the cord has anything to do with Hay's murder or burial? If it was left out in the elements for about a month, shouldn't the DNA be too degraded to get a full profile? Not necessarily, because if, if you see the crime scene photos of the wire in question, it was tied in a knot. And, and that is a very common place now that touch DNA is, is so widely used. Knots are a great place to find DNA because that's, you know, there's going to be friction when a knot is being tied. It's going to be manipulated with the, with whoever's tying the knot's hands. If someone's wearing gloves and they may actually take their gloves off in order to tie a knot. So the skin cells that were pulled off of that cord could have come from inside of that knot once the knot's untied. So that would have protected it from the elements. And there could have, there could have been just leaves on top of it. And we can't say definitively that that court is absolutely connected to Hayes' murder, but it sure as hell seems pretty likely. I mean, there's Hayes' body was found 127 feet away from the road. I've actually been to the site. I've stood at Hayes' burial site. There's no path, obvious path that connects you to the burial site from the road. There's no obvious reason why something would be in that location. And... It was found within inches of the burial site. So so you have an item that is right there next to where Hay is buried. It seems pretty likely in that location that that has something to do, some connection with the crime itself. But I think that if we were to figure out whose DNA that belongs to, that could go a long way. It would have to be basically whoever is connected to that wire or rope. The reason they were there on the scene would have to be explained. So say that DNA is tested and we find out that it's, you know, someone who's related to Adnan or someone related to Hay, anyone who's connected to Hay in any way, that is a very, very good indication that that was deposited there by the person that killed her and buried her. And it could be a completely random person, but maybe like a serial killer or something like that. Again, no reason for them to be there. And I actually can't think of what scenario would fit with it being not connected? You know what I mean? So if they if they find that profile belongs to fill-in-the-blank whoever woman, it would be really di- difficult for someone to effectively explain why their DNA was found on that wire six inches away from a dead body that was buried. And Richard makes a good point when he says, wouldn't the uh, DNA be washed away from being out in the elements for that long? You know, that is an issue. And like I said, there's, there's reasons why it could be protected. But I think that the longer the cord was there, the less likely it would be that they would find a full profile on it. So that would mean if the wire was not connected to Hayes' murder, that it was either deposited there after she was killed and buried, which means someone was been literally standing on top of her body and dropped that wire right next to her body, or it was there much earlier, before she was buried. And then we have to think, well, how does that happen? Because, you know, we're seeing in the crime scene photos, and I know a lot of you haven't seen the crime scene photos other than what was shown in the docuseries, but we're seeing what the burial site looked like with Hay buried. But keep in mind, there was a process there. The hole had to be dug out, meaning so all the dirt has to be taken out of the hole and then set next to the hole. 
So like where this where this wire was found, likely that's where the dirt was put that was removed from the hole in order to make room for Hay's body to put down in it. So that makes it to me even less likely that that wire is just something that was randomly placed there. Unless it was placed there after the fact by somebody that somehow was standing right there, literally on top of her body and dropped this wire and didn't notice they were standing on top of a body. But you have to remember that whole area around the burial site would have all been disturbed when Hay's body was being buried. And it's either side, right? So when they're digging the dirt out of the hole, they're going to pile it, even if they just pile it onto one side of the hole. Well, that means they have to stand on the other side of the hole. So there's their feet are moving around, the body's being drug in there, the body's being put into the hole. There's a lot happening all around that area. So for this wire to be on top of the ground, less than eight inches away from Hay's body, to me, it is it is almost certainly connected with her burial, at least, if not the murder itself. Okay, Lori says, is there any known connection between Alonzo Sellers and anyone else involved? Where did he live? And did he live close to any other related people? As far as I know, there's no, and I think we've covered this before, but as far as I know, there's no known connection between Alonzo Sellers, who was Mr. S and Serial, and any of the key players in this case, or anybody that was connected to Hay or Ednan or Jay or Don even, or his family. You know, people have made some leaps in the fact that, you know, he's been arrested multiple times for indecent exposure and for streaking. And Jay worked at a porn store at the time, uh, you know, in the the weeks after Hay was killed. So maybe there's some connection there. But that again, that's just a leap. I mean, that's that's someone assuming that just because someone likes to take their clothes off and run away, that they also like to go to the the porn store, the strip. You know, I think they had like peep show booths or something. Um, is what was described in the docuseries. So, you know, that's a leap. As far as I know, there's no known connection. And as far as where he lived, Alonzo Sellers lived very, very close to Woodlawn High School. I mean, like within a mile of the school. Amber says, I think that Don is the most likely suspect for Hayes' murder, especially since she was supposed to see him that day. But I can't figure out where her cousin fits in. If she picked him or her up on a regular basis, I can't imagine that she would blow that off to see Don. So the fact that she didn't make it to pick up the cousin puts doubt in my mind about Don being guilty. What are your thoughts? Well, I have no idea. First of all, I want to make clear if Don is guilty or not. Uh, my position has been and still is that Don is a, a good suspect. I think Don is someone who should be investigated. Uh, in no way am I saying that Don did this. But as far as the, how the cousin fits in and everything, you have to look at all of the evidence in its totality. So remember that Hay's friend said that at lunch that day, Hay was upset and distracted. And, and then she went from, yes, she has time after school to give someone a ride or whatever. There was, um, I have the name uh, Nikisha, but that's not her name. Somebody, one of our listeners will remember the name. But there's another witness that said she asked Hay for a ride after school. And Hay said that she couldn't give her a ride because she had something she had to do real quick. So let's factor in the fact that People at lunch said that Hay sounded and seemed upset and distracted, and then she had originally had time to do something after school, and then after lunch she says, nope, something came up. And then let's go back to Hay's diary. Uh, if, if you listen back in season one to my episode titled Conflicted, I believe, and it's just a theory, but I believe that there are some indications in Hay's diary that she was very conflicted about her relationship with Don and missing her relationship with Adnan. 
you know, we have the the la- the last page of her diary where she writes Don 127 times, but on that same page, she also wrote down Adnan's phone number when he called her, and then at the bottom of the page, I believe it says, "I miss my baby." Now, I think a lot of people interpret that as her talking about Don. She misses Don, her baby. But to me, that seems like kind of an odd connection. If she's talking to him and she's writing his name, like why is she missing him? If she's if she's actively in a relationship with him, she's seeing him often at work. She's talking to him all the time. They're going on dates. Why is she missing him while she's on the phone with him? Also, throughout the entire diary, Hay never refers to Don as her baby, but she does refer to Adnan over and over and over and over again as my baby. So, and again, that's, uh, you know, again, I'm the first to admit that that's a leap. It's a hypothetical. It's a theory. But when I see that and I'm trying to imagine myself as being Heyman Lee sitting at her desk in her room, talking on the phone, doodling in her diary, it's hard for me to connect the 127 Dons with I miss my baby, as well as on the same page we have Adnan's phone number. I think it's possible that her conversation with Don maybe didn't go well. Maybe all the Dons are written on the page because she's thinking. She's thinking a lot. She doesn't She doesn't exactly know what she wants right then. She talks to Adnan, and after she gets off the phone with Adnan, you know, she, she's thinking, I kind of miss him. I miss my baby. So if, if, you, if you consider that, consider her diary and interpret it however you will, then you consider the fact that at school, prior to lunch, everything's fine. Lunchtime rolls around. Something happened to distract her. She's upset. She's distracted. She had time to do things after school prior to picking up her cousin, but then she says she doesn't because something came up. She has something to do. The fact that Debbie says that Hay told her that she was leaving to go see Don, I think that it is entirely possible that whatever she had to do with school was something that she needed to do, and it was going to be quick. So, for example, I mean, there's theories out there, and, and these are... These theories are in the Don realm, but I want to I want to be clear again that you know I'm not saying any of this is true. These are just theories that people have discussed that I I tend to think are plausible. It could have been I'm going to real quick meet up with Don. I want to hook up with him. You know, say she goes to a hotel that's and there are hotels right there within you know two minutes of Woodlawn High School. Uh, she goes to she leaves school right after school. She goes straight to a hotel. She's there by two twenty five. That gives her a half hour to spend with whoever she's meeting at the hotel before she would have to leave to run up and grab her cousin. So that could have been, I want to go hook up with him real quick. Or it could have been a possibility, which I think could fit with the crime. If you're looking at him as a suspect, it could have been, I'm going to go meet up with him real quick because I need to break things off with him because I miss Adnan. Or I need to have a hard conversation with him because I'm conflicted between him and Adnan. So I don't think that Hay's cousin necessarily means that whatever she was doing means that she was going to blow off her responsibility of picking up her cousin. I think what it tells us is that whatever she was leaving to go do, she thought would be short. It would be quick enough that she could run and do it real quick and then still make it to pick up her cousin. So whatever she was going to do, we can assume probably, I think, would take less than 30 minutes. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This next one's from Molly. Why would Don call the police around 1 a.m. instead of waiting until the next day? Well, we don't know that Don called the police at, at 1 a.m. The officer's notes say that, you know, they had reached out to Don and they called his dad's house, if I'm remembering correctly, around six or seven. And then it says they weren't able to, or it says, you know, something along the lines of, I finally made contact with Don at 1.30 a.m. So we don't know if that means that officer, I think it was O'Shea at that time, um, might have been Adcock. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to pull from memory here. But we don't know if that means that he called again at 1.30 in the morning, if he went to his house at 1.30 in the morning, or if Don called him back at 1.30 in the morning. The big issue with Don is we don't know. The reason we're having all these conversations about him is because the police never fully vetted or investigated him. So we have all these unanswered questions, and this is just another example of that. You know, it, We would know a little more if it said, Don called me back at 1.30 a.m., or I tried Don again at 1.30 and actually got a hold of him, or I went to Don's house. But instead, it just said it was able to make contact with Don at 1.30 a.m. Lisa says, with Adnan's claim of ineffective post-conviction counsel, does that mean that Justin Brown can't be his attorney anymore? I don't know. That's a good question. And to be honest with you, I don't know if it was Justin who filed his initial post-conviction claim. I think it was, uh, but I'm not sure. So, And that's something I probably should know. I'm not sure why I don't know at this point, I guess because I haven't looked. but. If Justin was his post-conviction attorney that filed that brief, then I think he would have to have another attorney file that motion for ineffective assistance of post-conviction counsel because I don't know if Justin can file that on himself. You know, and that's something that, you know, has been considered, at least I've considered with uh, the Melgar case in the fact that we're filing her initial brief has been filed for her appeal. And we're waiting on a ruling on it. And one of the things that is not included is any ineffective assistance of counsel claims. Now, I don't know if there are any ineffective assistance of counsel claims to to put into the brief, but because the Seacrests were the trial attorneys and the appellate attorneys, I think that could be a concern because if there was something present that should be argued, I don't know that they could or would argue it. The only thing that I've seen for, through the trial transcripts that could go down that line would be the fact that Mac allowed Celestina Rossi's testimony after acknowledging that he got the report late. I, I I don't think that would necessarily be effective because the report was only her blood spatter testimony. I don't think that it was her blood spatter testimony that did the damage. So because you'd have to show that, number one, the attorney was deficient in their performance, and then also that it was prejudicial or it would make a difference in the trial. 
And considering the report only had to do with the blood spatter evidence, I think the more devastating part of Celestina Rossi's testimony was when she went on to to give her opinions about how she thinks this is a staged crime scene and she doesn't see any signs there were home invaders and there's no forced entry, which again was why I kind of had a problem with that testimony because once you really dig into her questioning, she actually didn't know much about the crime scene. She was just guessing uh, or or us making assumptions. Uh, but I think that was the more devastating part. I think if you pull out the blood spatter testimony, you still end up with the same result. Not that I think it was the correct result, but I don't think that that really swayed people one way or the other based on her trial testimony. So anyway, getting back to the Anon case, yeah, I I, I think, and uh, the lawyers in the group will probably know the answer much better to that than I would, but I think that it would need to be another attorney who would have to file that claim. All right, that's going to do it for the Anon Syed case. Now we're going to get on to the Melgar stuff. Okay. Stacy says, Please refresh my memory on who Eric is in regards to Sandy's case. The only Eric in the case that I know of would be Eric Devlin, who was the computer forensics expert that testified uh, about the computer activity. John wants to know, are you planning on interviewing Billy Belk? I would love to interview Billy Belk. I actually asked Allison Seacrest to reach out to him for me to see if he was interested in doing an interview, and he said he didn't want to do an interview. So I would like to, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Lisa says, it seems like the focus is always on the position of the chair blocking the closet door. Was the chair thoroughly tested? We know it is a key piece of evidence and one that was definitely touched. They would say by her and Herman, but there is always a possibility that there might be other evidence on it, like fingerprints, DNA, etc. They may have used gloves like you suspect. Yeah, so the chair had a big cover on it, and the cover was collected into evidence and it was swabbed and tested and nothing was found. But again, the methods used, we've talked about this several times as far as DNA, you can't test all of it. So they're they're using a cotton swab with a sterile solution on it and swabbing certain areas of the chair to see if they pick anything up. And there was nothing significant found on the chair. However, there are new methods out there now, specifically a method known as MVAC technology, which is essentially a wet vac that sucks all of the the DNA or cells off of an item. And I think that it could be useful in this case for both the bindings and the chair. The way it works is instead of just using a cotton swab and swabbing a certain area of, say, this chair cover, they would take the entire chair cover and this machine, it, it sprays that sterile solution onto the surface of whatever it is, especially something porous like uh, like like this chair cover. It's cloth. And then it sucks up with a vacuum, sucks that in onto like a filter that catches everything. So the filter becomes the the swab, so to speak. But with it's it's a collection method that could be used to, I think, pull a lot more DNA off of. I mean, they say the the tests say that uh, MVAC technology can get sometimes two hundred times more DNA than you can get with a swab because it also can get DNA that's like down deep into the fibers. So that's a method that might be able to be used in this case. Um, but as of now, from what I know from the reports, it doesn't sound like they got anything significant off of the chair cover. April wants to know, would Sandy be able to collect insurance money if her conviction was overturned? That's a good question. I, I, I really don't know. I would think so. I mean, if they had an insurance policy and accidental death was covered, uh, it was denied because she was a suspect in the case and was ultimately convicted. 
I would assume if that conviction was overturned and she was proved actually innocent, that she would be entitled to the life insurance money. All right. And Leanne says, is Colleen Barnett's usual style so combative in the courtroom? Did she really feel that strongly of Sandra's guilt that she would badger a witness? I would be interested in knowing if she behaves like that on all her cases or just this one. You know, I don't know. And obviously I can't speak to Colleen Barnett's state of mind. It's just about winning. When I'm reading these transcripts, like Colleen Barnett went into this trial intent on winning, which is not surprising. Every prosecutor does that. But from a perspective of us laymen that are reading it and watching what happened and really looking at the practicality of what's being done, it's upsetting because her job is supposed to be not about winning. It's supposed to be about finding the truth. So, you know, we want to say, why are you trying to stop someone from giving information that might help the jury come to the truth? Um, But it's not I don't think that's anything specific to Colleen Barnett. That's just how it works in America. It's one of the problems that I think we have in our system is that it's so adversarial and the rewards in that profession are based heavily around uh, winning and losing, not so much finding justice. Um, but as far as badgering the witnesses, I don't know. I mean, I was, she, it, it seemed really odd to me with Billy Belk because she knows Billy Belk It said in a testimony, they've known each other for 15 years. He's testified for her. So for her to flip on him like that, I don't, I guess it was surprising to say the least because, you know, she's, she's attacking his credibility on the stand by pointing out that he doesn't have nearly the qualification as Celestina Rossi. But then you want to ask yourself, well, then why did you use him to testify before? If he was such a shitty witness, then why did you allow him to testify in your cases before? Sarah says, I'm trying to figure out, especially after Belk's testimony, how did this jury convict Sandra? I would love to hear from a juror to help me understand how there was no doubt in that jury room. Was it just that Barnett was a better storyteller? Please give your thoughts on how in the world they came to their conclusion. Honestly, I wish I knew. I've tried to get jury members to come on the show and nobody wants to, uh, which I guess I can understand. But I don't know. I think that this is one of the fundamental problems in the American criminal justice system in the fact that it looks good on paper, right? The prosecution has the burden of proof. It's not the defense's job to prove their innocence. And so, you know, the prosecution gets to open up first. They get the final word in closing arguments. But the reality is that's just not the case. People tend to believe the police. They tend to believe the prosecutors. They tend to walk into trials assuming that the police must have got the right person or they wouldn't have arrested them. And jurors expect the defendant to prove their innocence, even though on paper they're not supposed to have to do that. And I think when it came down to it, you know, all it takes is that they maybe they like Colleen Barnett better than Max Seacrest or her final. I mean, personally, I think that. We heard it directly from the jury foreman's mouth. At the end of the day, her story made the most sense. Her theory made the most sense. The problem is that her theory wasn't based in fact or evidence or reality, but she was able to convince the jury that she has a theory that makes sense and that's how they convicted. And that's just, it's just not right. That's not how the system is supposed to work. But unfortunately, that is how it does work in a lot of cases. Christy says, this is a very general question, but how do seasoned professionals avoid narrowing of the investigation on one person based on their professional experience, when a lot of the time, that gut instinct or experience has been proven to be correct? How do they avoid confirmation bias? Confirmation bias is a tough thing, uh, and I guess it's kind of a philosophical question, but I mean, the answer is simple. Just do your job 
correctly every time. Don't assume that your theories are always going to be right, even if most of the time they are right. And, and that's what, what Jim Clemente has taught me over and over and over again. And I even learned when I, was, when I was investigating fires back in the day, every investigation needs to be driven by evidence. A suspect or a theory-driven investigation is a recipe for disaster. And, and so that's how you get locked into confirmation bias is by developing a theory before you get all of the evidence. Uh, because it, it, because then you tend to only want to look at evidence that fits that theory. And I know that I've been accused of doing that time and time again, but I, I can tell you from the bottom of my heart, that's not what I do, or at least I, I try to make a conscious effort to look at every single piece of evidence and interpret it to figure out what it means without trying to make it fit into a narrative. And, and Mike, you've been a part of that process a lot where we, you know, I, I play devil's advocate all the time. And then you, you participate in that with me a lot too, mm-hmm. where, you know, it's like, okay, well, I think this evidence means this. Uh, and you're really good about saying, okay, but what if it means this? Could it? And then we start attacking that and looking into it like, okay, could it mean that? Are there, is there any way to shoot a hole in this alternate theory of how the same evidence fits into the case? Genuinely, that's how we approach the cases, every single element of the case. And usually there's there's one theory that emerges that can't have holes shot into it, that, that you can't find flaws. You can't find the way that it doesn't fit into the evidence. Um, you know, a great example of that was the computer stuff we talked about a couple of weeks ago. You know, my theory is that if those were human interactions, as far as the the, the failed login and the successful login, so what does that mean? What scenario can I think of as to how that was Sandy, where she l- tries to log in, fails, and 30 minutes later successfully logs in, but doesn't do anything after she logs in? What could that mean? Why would that happen? And what you're kind of left with is, I don't know, it doesn't make sense, but it's possible, as opposed to why would a home invader try to log in unsuccessfully and 30 minutes later log in successfully and then not do anything after they log in. Well, that's a scenario that I can make make sense in my mind if they're just trying to get the password for the computer so that they can use it to to reset it, to wipe it clean and sell it. They they wouldn't need to do anything on the computer because all they need is the password because if they don't have the password they can't sell it because no one can log into it, and they would be essentially locked out. So that scenario makes sense to me. I cannot come up with a scenario that makes sense for Sandy to try to log in, fail, log in again, and then not do anything. Why would she log? Why was she logging in to begin with? And, and and this is at a time when we think that the murders are occurring. So like, why in the middle or right before or right after killing her husband is she dinking around on the computer? but not doing anything? What was her purpose for logging in? And so, so and th- that's what I mean. That's an example of us looking at it from all angles. What could this evidence mean if Sandy's innocent, but also what could it mean if Sandy's guilty and which theory makes the most sense? Now, people may have different opinions on that, but that's how you avoid that confirmation bias is to constantly keep an open mind, look at everything from all angles, and and find out because you know usually it it really hasn't been so much in this particular case but in most cases there there's going to be items of evidence that could lean towards guilty even if the person is innocent and it, without addressing those and explaining that this doesn't necessarily look good for the the person that we believe is innocent 
if we don't do that, then then we we are biased, and then then we are what people say we are, who think that our whoever it is our subjects are guilty, and we never want to do that. So I, I guess the answer to the question is just do your job properly, do an evidence based investigation, gather evidence, use a scientific method. You gather evidence, you use all of the evidence to develop a theory. And then you go back to that theory and see if you can find holes in it. See if there's any more evidence as you continue that disregards that theory or shows you that that theory couldn't be possible. Okay, Keith says to us, I've listened to every episode and have always appreciated that it was by and large a clean podcast with swears in the outtakes even being censored. But for the last couple of months, it seems like an F-bomb is being dropped nearly every week. I just want to know if I can listen to Truth and Justice with my kids in the car, or if this is a permanent tonal shift. So it's not an intentional tonal shift, and you know I appreciate the question. Here's the thing, and I'm trying to say this is because I do appreciate the question, and I appreciate the fact that uh, that this listener wants to be able to listen with their kids. But you have to remember that this is very adult content in general. So you know we're talking about murders and investigations and things like that. So it's Basically, when I'm speaking, I, I I I sort of speak when I what I feel. I did notice after reading this in last week's episode, I swore a lot more than I normally do, and I, and I try not to do that too much. But at the same time, you're, what you're getting always on the show is you're getting me, and you're getting how I'm really feeling. And and to be honest with you, I've been in kind of a piss poor mood for the last couple months. I haven't been home hardly at all, and it's really uh, so you know that kind of does set the tone. I try not to let it, but. I have slept in my own bed six times in the last six weeks. So that's, you know, I miss my wife. I miss my kids. I miss my bed. I miss my dogs. And that does affect my mood. And maybe that, uh, maybe that brings out a little more, um, cursing here and there. So, so I guess the answer to the question is it's not an intentional tonal shift where I want to start cussing more, but I cannot tell you that I'm not going to swear on the show or drop an F bomb on the show. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever feels right in the moment. And I and I and I don't mean to say that your opinion doesn't matter or sorry your kids can't listen, but that just I guess you need to be aware as parents who maybe want their kids to listen to this with them, just be aware of the fact that you know there may be the occasional f bomb dropped, and uh, I'll, I'll give you a warning that in the closing segments of today's episode, you're probably going to hear some because there's something that I want to discuss that I'm a little fired up about, and when I start talking about it, I can pretty much guarantee you that you're going to hear a little bit of swearing there. So I, I guess the big thing, the, the takeaway is, keep in mind this show is, the, the intended audience for this show is not children. The intended audience for the show is for adults. So you just have to decide, you know, I'm never going to get super graphic or do anything like that without warning you as far as kids. But if you don't want your kids to hear cuss words, then probably it's not it's not a good idea to have them listen. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. The last thing I want to talk about, Bob, is the final episode of the Getting Off podcast where they wrapped up their thoughts on the Melgar case. And in the last 20 minutes or so of that show, they had a lot to say about the type of work that we do. Essentially, as lawyers, they're telling us non-lawyers to stay in our lane. And Bob, I know you had a lot to say about that. I do have a lot to say about it. Um, So I've listened to a little bit of the Getting Off podcast. I have not listened to the whole series. I did not even listen to their final episode other than this last 20 minutes. Because on Sunday, I was getting barraged from listeners pissed off because they felt like they personally were being attacked by the host of the Getting Off podcast. So I went and listened to the last 20 minutes of their Melgar wrap-up, and it was a a good solid 20-minute rant, essentially, about how you, you said the exact words, Mike, that we need to stay in our lane and not do the work that we're doing. And uh, their reasoning behind that was essentially they're saying they're lawyers and they live in this world every day and they know how the system works and investigators know how the system works. And we're just a bunch of armchair amateur sleuth nobodies that have no business poking our noses into the justice system. And I do have a very strong opinion about that. I don't know either of those hosts at all, so I don't even care personally what they think about this. but. I'll say this, like you can kiss my ass on that because if you, why don't you go ahead and ask Adnan Syed or Ed Eight or Jesse Eldridge or Joey Watkins or a whole number of other people if they want us to stay in our fucking lane. Because if we had stayed in our lane and not us ordinary dumbass citizens butted in and checked your work and not you specifically, these two hosts, but the work of the original investigators and the work of the attorneys and the work of the judge then those people wouldn't have a fighting chance at all. I'll use Ed's case as a perfect example. All the people in your lane screwed Ed over. From the time of the investigators, the time of the trial, even in post-conviction work, Ed submitted his case on multiple occasions to the Innocence Project, and he was denied because they didn't have the resources. The people in that lane didn't have the goddamn resources to investigate his case. So we stepped in to help someone who no one else was helping. And if we follow your rules of staying in our lane, then Ed H. is still in prison instead of the fact that this weekend he got to celebrate his anniversary with his wife at home because a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of armchair detectives that have no business butting into your world stood up and decided we weren't going to take it and we were going to fight. And I believe regardless of what you think, that a more powerful tool than the lawyers and the police officers that are in the system, is specifically in post-conviction work, is having 100,000 people with skill sets that are unmatched by any amount of professionals or experts that can be brought into any case like this. We have engineers that can look at engineering things. We have photographers that can look into photography things. We do have lawyers that are part of our army. We have people that work in the entertainment industry that can find out what time certain TV shows started, information that's not available to the people that are in your lane. And all of these people are doing this for free. And I will say this to, I don't remember the female host name, Jessica or Jess, Jess, whatever it is. 
uh, when you say, you know, how dare I or how dare anyone that's not in your position say anything about this work because you are the one who loses sleep at night over these people. If you think that you're the only person that gives a damn and loses sleep and sheds tears over these cases, you are so far off the mark and living in the same bubble that has created the problem that we have in our criminal justice system that the lawyers and the prosecutors and the defense attorneys and the judges and the cops, all of whom are mad about us doing this, all think that they are the only ones capable of interpreting evidence when the fact of the matter is more eyes on the evidence makes a fucking difference. And so if you want to know if I'm going to stay in my lane or if I'm going to keep butting in, I'm going to do this over and over and over again because someone has to stand up for the people that no one's fighting for. And I don't disagree with what you said about how we need to go to the ballot box and vote and get involved. I believe in all of that. But for you to say that that's the only thing we can do, that we can only help on the front end and forget about all the people that have already been devastated by this system, who are trapped in it, who don't have resources to even hire an attorney to try to get into your fucking lane, we're not going to stop. So am I going to continue making a podcast where I'm going to ask people to join me and help to try to help those people that can't help themselves, you're goddamn right I am. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.
I didn't. Well, I didn't listen to that. Uh, now I wish I had because it sounds like they were pretty uh, demeaning to to us. And I, I didn't. I saw a little bit on like our fan page, but I didn't. You know, I didn't know what what they said exactly. Dude, on your ride home today, listen to the last twenty minutes of that, and you will your blood will boil. Yeah, the arrogance, right? The, the arrogance and ignorance of them saying how you know you basically you don't know what you're doing and you can't have an effect and and you shouldn't even be butting in or policing us because we're the lawyers and we know it's just like unbelievable. Like, do you fucking actually believe that? Is like, it like are you kidding me? Is it like is it like they're like scared of like the extremes of it, like vigilante justice type stuff, or is it not even going there? They brought up some of that. They talked about like doxing people and attacking these professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I agree with that as far as like the doxing goes. We don't do that. I'm sure they've been told that we do do that, but we don't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. They they talk a little bit about about you shouldn't dox and attack these professionals, but the thing is like. If no one's watching these people, then that's how this shit happens. Because if you think that there's no crooked cops out there and there's no crooked prosecutors and there's no crooked judges, like that's, that's willfully ignorant to think that. And someone has to check them, but it's not going to be the people inside the system that are going to check that. It's going to be us, the people on the outside that are and and, you know, there's people that have issues with, you know, me calling these professionals out on their shit, but. I'm going to keep doing it every goddamn time because I want people to know. I want these professionals to know that if you cheat the system to get your desired result, that we're going to call you out on it and the world's going to know about it. Because to me, that is helping on the front end because if people are aware of that, are conscious right now, there are people that are consciously aware of the fact that there are armies out there between our podcast and undisclosed and, and and I'm I'm drawing a blank right now, and I feel bad about that because there's a bunch of other ones out there like us that are 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 going to call them out on it, and it causes them to do their job properly. Then I think that we're winning. <laughs> as soon as you learn this was going on the show, clam up. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> no, no. So there's. I'm sorry, man. There's. It's fifty percent clam up, but fifty percent. I don't know when you're done, and I I can't hear you really. But um. What what is this sh- the show? The hosts are a couple lawyers, and they cover wrongful convictions, or do they did they just touch on social justice this past week, just like a one episode deal, or what? No, so they're 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 two lawyers, and they and they just examine cases, um, just 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 by going through trial transcripts. So it's it's supposed to be kind of this really subjective, objective, um breakdown of these cases only looking at trial evidence but then they just chose to in their final they they took on the Melgar case and then their final episode and the final closing minutes they decided to uh you know to 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 mansplain and, and womansplain to all of us how uh we need to not do their job because they're so awesome at it hmm. has there been any kind of like lashback from listeners of our show or anything like that you know, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I don't follow their show. I don't follow their social media. I just, it was brought to my attention. So I listened to it. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I, I'm sure they've got some. I, I know from our fan page, there's a lot of our people that, you know, said, you know, I was, I was enjoying the coverage, but, you know, if you, Don McElhaney, um, on our page made a great post where he said, I guess my high school education doesn't matter, which is funny as hell because Don has been integral in helping us with our investigations in cases 
that do matter that are pushing the ball forward. But, you know, since he's not a lawyer, I guess he doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah that's ridiculous, man. Now I have to go listen to it. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.